Welcome to Clean Law from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. I'm Robin Jest, our Outreach and Communications Director. In this episode, I'll be speaking with our staff attorney, Hanna Viscara, about the legal landscape of offshore drilling and the proposed rule changes and executive orders that may affect where and how oil companies operate. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Hi, I'm Robin Jess, the Communications Director here at the Environmental and Energy Law Program, and I am delighted to be here with our staff attorney, Hanna Viscara, who has been tracking developments in offshore drilling under the Trump administration. And uh, she's another one I've been wandering into her office and asking her questions. And uh, I'm so happy to sit down with her and record some of those answers um, so we can find out. There's, there have been a lot of developments recently, and she's going to just give us the background and talk about uh, what's going on. So, Hannah, what's going on? <laughs> well, it's great to be here. Thank you, Robin. Um, so, you know, I think a big theme of this, the Trump presidency has been this energy dominance theme. Um, everybody's aware of it. He talks about it quite a bit. And uh, one of the ways that that's, been, that's played out has really been with try, an effort to increase offshore drilling. Um, the president has a pattern of sort of going after, uh, of having proclamations or edicts, usually through executive orders, that then uh, the relevant agencies have to follow up to implement and some with more success than others. Uh, and that is certainly the pattern we're seeing related to offshore drilling as well. So in 2017, President Trump issued an executive order that was titled Implementing an America First Offshore Energy Strategy. And this really kicked off a lot of the work that they've done since uh, related to offshore drilling and their efforts to expand energy development in general. And it, it had a number of pieces to it. First was that it instructed the Department of Interior to expand leasing to include previously off-limits areas, uh, such as the mid and south Atlantic coast, all of the Gulf of Mexico, part of that was, was previously off-limits, and the Chukchi and Beaufort Seas in Alaska. And that order actually overturned three Obama-era executive orders that protected uh, parts of the Arctic and the Atlantic areas from oil and gas leasing. The order also uh, ordered a report on marine sanctuaries and monuments and an effort to expedite reviews and permitting under the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act that deal with protected marine species. And then finally, one of the other big uh, pieces that we're following is that the order directed the agencies to reconsider a series of offshore drilling safety and environmental rules that were proposed or finalized under the Obama administration. So really that executive order was the kickoff to a whole range of activity uh, at the agency level in different pieces of the Department of Interior uh, and parts of the uh, Department of Commerce as well. You mentioned expanding leasing uh, for offshore drillers. Um, that's part of the executive order intention. Where does that stand? So the way that uh, has played out is really there's two two pieces to it. One is that the agency, uh, ha- Department of Interior, has initiated a number of lease sales in the existing lease areas in the in the Gulf of Mexico and off the coast of Alaska. But the one that really has the mo- garnered the most attention and controversy is that they, that BOEM, the Bureau of Ocean and Energy Management, uh, has proposed dramatically expanding federal managed ocean areas that are available for energy development. 
by creating a new five-year plan. Um, so every every five years, Boehm creates a five-year leasing plan that uh, is supposed to sort of sort of map out what is going to be available for leasing during that time frame and how that development will will go. Um, the existing five-year plan that was created under the Obama administration started in 2017. So the administration has asked and the, the Boehm to create a new one, which would have initiated would was supposed to start in 2019. Wait, so even though the Obama administration did a five-year plan, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. The new president can. Well, the new it. president has asked the has asked the agency to reconsider and create a new one based on new policy. Uh, considerations and, and directions that this administration wants to go in. And the five-year plan, forgive me for not remembering if you've already said it, is part of, um, is that just agency mandate? Is that a law? Is that the so executive it's, order? It's part, so the part, it's part of the offshore development process under, under OXLA. These, these, it's part of what the agency, um, the agency's leasing authorities uh, that are granted under the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act. Um, the executive order specific, the way it, in, it it intersects with this, is that Trump, through the executive order, because uh, he is he wants to see broader ranges of areas offshore available for leasing, he is instructing the agency to consider it to implement a new five year plan that it is more expansive than the prior. Prior one, and part of the reason is that his executive order actually withdrew some of uh, withdrew protections that Obama had put in place by proclamation uh, for certain areas, and so those areas weren't even considered for leasing in the prior plan because they were withdrawn from by president presidential proclamation. They were not allowed to be leased. So now Trump has said we. You know, he's trying to reverse that and has ordered the uh, uh, the agency then to implement a new five-year plan that re- reflects that, essentially. And so it is. it would start only two years into the five-year plan that exists already, but it's sort of triggered by this other action that the president is taking during the executive, the executive order. order. Yeah. I see. And does the five-year plan need to go through public comment period? Yes. And, okay. So this is where it stands right now. And actually, it gets more complicated. Of course it does. <laughs> because there's been some developments uh, related to the president's authority to do this, in fact. So uh, Boehm issued a draft in January 2018. And it, it had dramatic expansion of areas available for leasing all of the Atlantic coast all of you know all of the Gulf of Mexico Pacific every you know almost everything in the Arctic and off the Alaska coast off the Alaska coast um, as you probably have noticed and can imagine there was a lot of backlash to that yeah, I remember that it hit the fan all the governors even in Florida right yeah they said no we don't want this yeah the governor yeah. of Florida actually specifically asked the president to reconsider there are there are um, Methods within the uh, OXLA, the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act, for the government to, you know, to take consideration of states' interests, and um, although it's mostly more about, you know, considering their their voice, not necessarily uh, giving the states a lot of authority in that area. But um, in fact, all of the Atlantic coastal governors have opposed the plan. Um, and whether whether they're Republican or Democrat, uh, the coastal wow. most you know for one of the the 
big examples that comes to mind that did not get a tentative assurance from the agency that maybe they'd be withdrawn like Florida did with South Carolina, who cares a lot about their tourism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really the concerns for the states that have not traditionally had oil and gas is that it'll impact their fishing, uh, commercial industry, their recreational fishing, their tourism. They A lot of them are heavily reliant on their beach tourism and coastal communities and just, you know, generally quality of life too for the coastal communities because there's a lot of infrastructure that goes along with this type of development that's on lands. And there's been a whole range of responses in anticipation of of this type of expansion from uh, legislatures to really try to find ways and creative ways to some in some way in some, some instances to in, impede that type of uh, development should this leasing plan go into effect. Um, you know, I know some states have have passed uh, laws around the the waters that they have control over about um, not allowing for for leasing there, but also the use of their coastal areas for infrastructure development along in support of uh, efforts. And you know, so, that's something that definitely warrants some more discussion. But it's it's you know, it's a lot of. Uh, I think it's sort of experimental at the moment to right. see where that all will go. Can I drag you just a tiny bit deeper, pun intended, into <laughs> Perhaps. that? Perhaps. Um, so state waters are, what, two to three miles About offshore? three nautical miles, yeah. And so this executive order can't touch that. So states under OXLA have control over their waters up to three nautical miles, and then the federal government has control of the resources past that um, to the the full extent of U.S. is... 200 miles. It's about 200 nautical miles. There are a couple states that uh, that's not have more control. Uh, Texas does. Uh, they have a little bit further area because it, because of some historical reasons mm-hmm. that you know, it was sort of built into the or- original statute. Um, so, but for the most part, especially all the states that don't, haven't traditionally had oil and gas development, you're really talking about their state, their state waters are about three nautical miles. And then they can push back with the coastal development as well? Land use uh, is generally more of a local control kind of issue, state and local issue. So there's certainly some, um, you know, offshore development requires a lot of onshore support. Uh, and there's certainly work can, there's certainly efforts that states and local communities can do to try to mitigate some of the potential impacts uh, or, and you know, what they're trying right now is really actually to impede the development at all. Um, and I think that that will be an ongoing fight. You know, how successful they are at, um, at those efforts will depend on state constitutions, local zoning laws, um, potential for preemption issues. It doesn't mean that it will necessarily stop offshore development. Um, you know, you don't have to launch equipment from the closest coast necessarily. So I, I think a lot of that is just really, there's a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of concern and uh, it will remain to be seen what what uh, states and local communities actually are able to do. Um, they could make it more expensive. They right? could potentially make it more yeah. expensive. They can make it a little more difficult. They can... Um, require more mitigation in the process. I, you know, I, 
that's so far down the line, really. <laughs> because let <laughs> me tell podcast. you <laughs> what's happening first is that none of this is actually happening yet. <laughs> because right now, the five-year plan is actually stopped at the moment. Oh. The whole process is on hold. Um, so I mentioned that they had the draft out in January 2018. We had been expecting a draft, uh, a, a final proposal um, last fall, as early as last fall. And the agency has supposedly been very diligently working on this, um, but we hadn't seen anything. And then we had a partial government shutdown, and that delayed things as well. Although there was, there were reports that Boehm was, the, that the employees specifically working on the five-year plan were actually continuing to work during that time. It was a partial shutdown. They were, they found some money to fund them, uh, and so we kind of all expected maybe there'd be a plan that came out right after. Well, in March, March 29th, uh, a judge in Alaska created some problems for them in that area, uh, has halted the progress by uh, with a court decision that vacated the section of President Trump's executive order that revoked former President Obama's withdrawals from leasing. So what, what I'm talking about there you know, I mentioned at the very beginning that Obama had three presidential proclamations that withdrew certain areas from leasing. Um, it meant it protected certain areas from from being considered for leasing in the five-year plan and and down the line. So it, Trump's executive order, the America First offshore energy order in 2017, specifically revoked those or with, replaced those. And... This judge ruled that the statute under which Obama made those withdrawals of, from leasing, the one that we've been talking about quite a bit here, OXLA, grants the president power to withdraw the areas from leasing. This is actually all part of Section 12A of that law. But it doesn't also give him the power to reverse a prior withdrawal. Interesting. The judge determined that such a reversal is only... That's reserved for Congress, that Congress intentionally held that power back for themselves. And that language is in OXLA? So the, the provision, there's not, there's not language specifically addressing this in OXLA. And, uh, but the provision, Section 12A, that grants the president authority to withdraw land, areas from leasing, uh, offshore areas from leasing, um, the way the, the judge interpreted the structure of the statute and the the powers that the that Congress intended to grant the president um, was to you know maintain hold back for Congress the power to reverse those decisions. So basically, they're saying President Trump, the this just federal district court judge has said that Pre- President Trump doesn't have the authority to uh, undo President Obama's withdrawals of those areas from leasing. Interesting. We'll see what happens. Right. That has now been uh, uh, appealed to the Ninth Circuit by the administration. So, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with that. It is a really interesting case to watch uh, for a number of reasons. But um, it's it's sort of halted their, their five-year plan efforts at the moment um, because they can't include – at the moment, they can't include all these areas that, you know, they were going through this process in order to include – and um, you know the outcome really dep- will will dictate whether that their current iteration of their proposal uh, is even viable. 
So in addition to this executive order and the lawsuit, um, there have also been some rollbacks to uh, offshore drilling rules. Is that right? Could you walk us through some of that? Absolutely. And it's actually still all related to the executive order. Everything kind of comes back to it. Um, you know, I think I mentioned at the beginning that part of what the executive order, order did was order the agencies to review and reconsider some of the rules that were put in place under the Obama administration. So that's that's something that this uh, this administration and their and particularly the Department of Interior has been undergoing. So as a result of the order, um, the Interior Secretary also issued a rule sort of implementing it. Uh, I'm sorry, not a rule, an order, that a secretarial order that followed up on the executive order to instruct the agency as to how he wanted it to, to implement the president's wishes. And as a result of that, BOEM, the Bureau of Ocean and Energy Management, which handles leasing and other issues, was instructed to halt, completely stop work on an offshore air quality control rule that was proposed in 2016. So they have done that. Um, they were also told to initiate a review of a 2016 requirement. This was actually a notice to lessees, so it's not a rule in the same way uh, as some of these others, for additional financial security for lessees. At the moment, that is actually still in place. It, the agency was respect, re, instructed to review it. I don't know what that what that review looked like, but it, that notice to lessees still is listed as active. And the financial security is to ensure that they can, what, deal with cleanups and yeah. decommissioning and Decommissioning, all that. that type of thing. They were also instructed to review the 2016 Arctic Exploratory Drilling Rule that imposed new inquir- requirements for drilling in the challenging and fragile environment in the Arctic. Uh, that I, We haven't seen a proposal come out from that review yet, so I'm not really sure where that stands. The two main rules that we have seen uh, work on besides just the halting of some of the the, the air quality rule, for example, um, actually can come out of Bessie, which is another portion. Both Boehm and Bessie are part of Interior, and both deal with offshore uh, drilling. Um, they are the two agencies. One's primarily Boehm primarily handles leasing and permitting in that area. Bessie, the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, as you can tell from its name, is supposed to be more sort of the safety regulator, safety and environmental regulator. There's some overlapping uh, authorities there, though. But Bessie was instructed to revise the Obama-era offshore production safety systems rule, and they have done that. That uh, has gone. Fi- their revision is final, um, rolling back a number of s- certain safety requirements for offshore equipment. It's you know pretty technical and and um, not a huge um, sort of earth-shaking change. This isn't the some, blowout preventer. No, that's the next one. Oh, okay. But this but is, that is both are, are related. And these are rules that came out um, after uh, Deepwater Horizon. Right. right. All of this stuff actually came out after all of the rules that um, the administration was instructed to, has, has instructed the agency to reconsider or review all of these rules are post-Deepwater Horizon in 2010. It was part of a really large reorganization of the agency, as well as once the reorganization was done, which resulted in the creation of both BOEM and BSEE, um, which previously were part of the same, they were one agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also There was also a significant amount of work done to try to improve safety and environmental uh, operations for offshore 
offshore drilling. So in addition to the offshore production safety systems rule, the other rule that has that they have actually finalized revisions to is the well control rule. And they just finalized revisions to that in May 2019, so this May. Um, it loosened some requirements that were included in the blowout preventer systems and well control rule of 2016. And then one other action that's been taken is BOEM and NOAA, which is part of Department of Commerce, um, have also worked on expediting incidental take authorization requests for seismic survey permits. Uh, They've published uh, updated technical guidance on on that process, and there's a rule proposal on the authorization process for oil and gas activities in the Gulf of Mexico, but that's not yet finalized. So the, the... biggest one and that you hear the most about is probably the well control rule which was just recently finalized and yesterday a a number of uh, environmental organizations have challenged that rule and just just uh just uh filed a suit i think see today is today the 12th 13th 13th okay two days ago june 11th i think it was so um just this week okay it's in the northern district of california uh they just filed it um they're making a number of allegations and about the the process under which this rule was developed, and um, the I, I believe also some of the the technical support. I have not yet actually read the complaint, mm-hmm. so I can't really give you a whole lot of, of detail on it yet. And that's we'll probably I was going to say we should have another conversation <laughs> once I have. Um, there is, and I don't know if this is part of it. It may be. Um, there was an interesting. Uh, little detail that that question that came up a couple of weeks ago. I know another one organization was questioning the use of um, some industry standards in the final rule, and it's it's sort of an interesting question. It may be part of their uh, challenge. When the final well control rule came out, there were a few stories out there around the. Um, its use of industry standards, uh, the it actually incorporated a number of industry standards into uh, into the regs, uh, and there was some question about that and whether that's proper, how it was done. Um, there's a couple of interesting things on that. I don't know. This is maybe part of the the lawsuit that was filed. I haven't actually read the challenge yet, but um, one one important note to that for that is though that. Um, this is a really technical rule about operations of drilling operations, and it's not unusual for the agencies to rely on technical standards that are developed by industry groups in conjunction with those who are operating, uh, but also usually with some involvement of the regulators, uh, either kind of tracking it or just being keeping abreast of what the the standard the standards that are being developed. Um, you know, you have. Agents, uh, organizations that create best practices based on the experience of the industry and the technical knowledge within it. And it, the agencies are actually encouraged to adopt those by law uh, as much as possible. Of course, they have to do their own evaluation on them and make sure that they 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 do what the, the rule needs them to do. The adoption of API standards into the regulation themselves is not necessarily something new and revolutionary or unusual or in any way inherently problematic. Um, I do think sometimes that gets distorted in, in discussion. 
And in, in fact, right now, across many different areas of rules, you will find industry standards adopted as, uh, as into regulations in various ways. There was one interesting question with this particular rule, though, and this actually is kind of relevant for how we've seen rulemaking go under this administration across the board. So what was interesting in, in this rule, uh, it, they adopted a number of API standards, and API is the American Petroleum Institute, which is a very large industry association. It has its lobbying arm that many people are probably most familiar with, but it also has a, you know, a, a good portion of it is really dedicated to technical development of the industry and, and standards and things like that. Um, so th the final rule adopted a particular API bulletin, which was not at all mentioned in the proposal. So there's been some discussion over whether that follows proper procedures, whether that's appropriate for a couple of reasons. Um, there was a general call for comments on a particular issue, situations where drilling can continue before receiving an alternative safe drilling margin approval from Bessie and asking commenters to, to give information about how that could be done. Um, but, it, it, you know, it, it never, the proposal did not list any particular uh, standards or bulletins or anything that, that they were considering. Uh, it was a really general request. The API bulletin that was ultimately included in the final rule was was mentioned in comments. You know, for for a general request like that, it wouldn't be unusual for the agency to review suggestions in the as a, in response to the proposal in in comments, and then maybe issue a supplemental proposal that identified its preferred changes and give people an opportunity to comment specifically on uh, the bulletin that it was pr uh, proposing to adopt. That didn't happen in this case, and so there's some uh, been some concern over whether that it violates the Administrative Procedures Act's requirements for notice and opportunity to comment. Um, you know, the agencies can include things in a final rule that were not included in a proposal. I see. You know, they, you, if we if we didn't allow agencies to do that, we would never get any rules out. <laughs> and because also you you want them to because you want them to consider the comments carefully and actually adjust their proposals as a response. That's why we have public comments. But they have to be a logical outgrowth of what the public was asked to comment on. And if they're not, or if they're kind of too far outside of that, um, you know, really there's an expectation that the public should have an opportunity to comment. Um, so this, this kind of falls in, it could potentially fall in that area. If a court finds that that wasn't appropriate, and this is just sort of one small example of administrative procedure and how it how it works in these rules, you know, Bone could be ordered to go back and, and you know, put out a new proposal or something along those lines. Um, the other issue with this particular document was that it wasn't a full-blown standard developed through a voluntary consensus process, which is how API's technical standards are generally developed. It's quote-unquote a bulletin, which is a little bit different, and the agency actually acknowledged in their rule that it may not be considered a voluntary consensus standard. That could become an issue, but you know, generally courts are pretty deferential to agency decisions on technical standards. So it'll really it'll be a fight over whether that uh, their technical evaluations, um, you know, are so arbitrary or, or their decision is ultimately so arbitrary that 
the court can't defer to their decision-making in that process. So, uh, again, this is just one tiny example of a potential uh, challenge to the well control rule because it's something that I know that there had been some discussion about with some organizations. Um, it may, it, I'm not sure if that's a major uh, issue with the in the current challenge that's before the court because um, I have to read it still. <laughs> but it's an interesting example of some of the challenges with these rollbacks, right. rollbacks and how the Administrative Procedures Act comes into play. Uh-huh. I've been grateful for that lately. <laughs> the Administrative Procedures Act, which I knew very little about before I started working here. It is uh, um, really administrative law is at the heart of, of environmental law, for right. sure. It's one of those things that is, um, you know, almost any environmental case involves an issue of administ- uh, related to the Administrative Procedures Act and administrative law in general. Um, so there's a whole, I mean, there are many other facets to this that we won't talk about today, but um, one of the final big pieces maybe we could discuss is the impact this executive order has on uh, marine national monuments and sanctuaries. Yeah, um, so there were actually two executive orders, very closely related and, and close in time as well. Uh, in 2017 that President Trump issued that, that relate to this. Um, there, The first one, there was one that's executive order number 13792. And then the one that we've already been talking about, which was just a couple days later, is 13795. And they ordered the Department of Commerce, to, which includes NOAA and the National Marine Fisheries, to review marine sanctuaries that were and they also uh, asked Interior to review monuments. So there had been a process um, at the agencies to review these sanctuaries and monuments and consider whether they should be revised or um, whether there should be some potential changes to activities allowed within them. And the, the secretaries of those two agencies were asked to issue a report to the president. Uh, Secretary Zinke submitted his final recommendations, which we have actually seen. Uh, and those, he looked at five marine monuments in his review, and his final recommendations suggested alterations to the management or size of three of them, including changing up how the how fishing was uh, managed within those areas. To allow commercial fishing. To potentially mm-hmm. allow commercial right. fishing. It was basically his, his recommendation was to return control over that to the re- regional fisheries councils, mm-hmm. is my understanding. Um, but the existing presidential and, and existing presidential proclamation had actually prohibited commercial fishing in those areas. Right. So he's basically recommended to you know, overturn that existing proclamation and return that decision making power to. Um, the fisheries councils that mm-hmm. that that oversee um, commercial fishing. The Secretary of Commerce also supposedly submitted a report to the president, but we haven't seen its content, so we don't know. It, it was not made public. Um, Does there it been, ever have to be? No, not really. These uh, the only reason the Interior Secretaries was, I believe, it was leaked. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so we don't really know what's happening. What what. Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, recommended. And right now, nothing has happened with the sanctuaries. So, we, you know, we haven't had any change, significant changes. Oh, the management policies have not changed yet. Well, the, the, there's not been any 
move by the administration to change the size of the offshore sanctuaries. We've seen a lot happen onshore related to monuments. You know, Bears Ears is in the news a lot. Um, And there's been some discussion, but nothing uh, specific around, you know, potentially changing boundaries or anything like that has yet happened Mm -hmm. for the offshore ones. So that's still something that's out there, something that was part of this executive order, but um, we haven't really seen come to fruition yet. And people can uh, look at our regulatory rollback tracker to keep track of when these things do change. Yeah, we are trying to keep up with this as much as possible. There is a, a we lot. have an offshore energy page, offshore development page on our tracker that, you know, as you can tell just from this discussion, <laughs> this is a complicated <laughs> process because there's a lot of sort of interlock, inter, interconnected issues, but um, we sort of set it up the way we talked about it today. We actually have a page that, you know, the, the landing page that really talks about sort of what the executive order asked the agencies to do, what the secretarial order from the from Interior that followed up on that asked the, you know, Bessie and Boehm, et cetera, to do. And then we have a page that just tracks what's happened with the rules, the actual regulations. Um, we have one that specifically is fo- focuses, a, you know, a subpage that specifically focuses on leasing activity. Uh, we're not trying to follow every little lease sale, but we're really trying to follow the development of these major changes like the five-year plan um, and the now litigation involved with that. Uh, and then we also have one that tracks sort of monuments and sanctuaries issues that right now is combined where we have we have both the onshore and, and offshore stuff combined. Uh, although that, that might change. <laughs> so yeah, we it's it, there's a lot going on. And I think... Uh, it can sometimes be hard to get your head around all the different pieces of this puzzle and how they're trying to go about uh, expanding op- offshore development opportunities through both, you know, just leasing opportunity, but also changing the rules a bit. They definitely, the rule changes we've seen are, I would say, are certainly responsive to industry concerns for costs and efficiency and you know, strengths of, you know, quickness of permitting and things along those lines. And so what we've seen them try to implement and do certainly fits within that. Um, But yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a broad spectrum. It's sort of a a whole, whole court press here on efforts to try to get around to push for more development. Just from our discussion, you can see that there's, um, you know, there's a process for all of this. Right. Then there's process processes that have to be respected. That's what our regula- our regulatory process and administrative law process is set up intentionally that with sort of somewhat complicated processes, but because they want to incorporate public comment, you want to have opportunities for for anybody involved to to be able to voice their opinions and thoughts and expertise. Um, you know, for transparency, for, um, you know, real reasoned consideration of the science involved. So the success of these, well, we have seen a couple of things go final, um, for the well control rule and the offshore drilling, uh, let's see, the systems rule, I think, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's like the safety drill, drilling systems rule have both gone final, and there are some more in the works. Um, that we've seen are, are under agency consideration right now. Uh, and they did halt the air quality, the progress on the air quality rule. 
there's a lot of stuff that's still in, in, in process. And even these rules, as we've seen just this week, we have a legal challenge to the well control revision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is, this is an ongoing, yeah. ongoing issue. Um, and something that has involved a lot of different voices uh, with states and legislatures mm-hmm. voicing their opinion as well. Thank you so much for um, that fantastic um, walk through a lot of what's happening with offshore drilling right now. And uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with you again soon as we see more things change and you have a chance to uh, read that challenge. Yeah, next time maybe we can uh, have a conversation of some of the more interesting legal wonky legal issues in some of these (laughs) some of these things rather than this big broad overview yeah yeah great well thank you hannah it's been so nice no problem